I think the harder part is looking at your collection and saying, this isn't getting enough wear and tear, if you will, and this isn't getting enough enjoyment as it should be. And I'm not wearing it for a reason because I'm really in love with these other things. And this is where my taste has evolved. So it's always hard to get rid of something, but I think it's okay. And I think it's one of those things where the easier it is for people to understand that an evolving collection is a great collection because you can't afford everything, makes you a better collector. What's going on, everybody? And welcome to Collector's Gene Radio. This is all about diving into the nuances of collecting and ultimately finding out whether or not our guests have what we like to call the collector's gene. If you have the time, please subscribe and leave a review. It truly helps. Thanks a bunch for listening, and please enjoy today's guest on Collector's Gene Radio. Today's episode is one that came together a tad last minute. My guest had to reschedule, and so my lovely wife, Madeline, so badly wanted me to put an episode out this week that she decided to interview me. So she locked herself in our bedroom and decided to write down some questions to blindside me with. We poured some wine, cozied up in our new home, and she hit me with some tough ones. Needless to say, she's a natural. Back to regular programming next week. But for now, this is Madeline Steiner interviewing me, Cameron Steiner, for Collector's Gene Radio. Okay, so today's episode is extremely different because my guest tonight had to reschedule, which is what happens when you're in showbiz. So my lovely wife, Madeline, said, why don't I just interview you? And I said, that's a great idea (laughs) because you've never interviewed anyone before and (laughs) why not interview me? So we have a bottle of wine open. We will do a little cheers to get started. She may laugh. She may cry. All the above. We'll see. He may laugh. He may cry. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Time will tell. Okay. Cheers. Cheers. All right, Cameron Rossteiner, welcome to Collector Sheen Radio. It's truly so great to have you on. So although I'm the one doing the interviewing today, you are the creator of Collector's Gene. So tell me a little bit about how you landed here. How did you start this? Good question. Um, This podcast started from obviously my love of collecting things in general, which I got from various family members, but I can definitely attribute it mainly to grandparents on both sides. Um, During the virus, when everyone was at home, I figured I would spend some extra time starting something that I was passionate about talking to other people that are passionate about the same thing. So I figured I would start this podcast and many delays later, uh, we're about 30 or so episodes in. This moment feels a little bit like COVID times, us sharing a desk. (laughs) Very much so. For those that don't know, Madeline and I just bought our first home, but before this, we were in a tiny little apartment in Scottsdale, Arizona, and we were sharing a desk during COVID, working with each other, separate jobs, but working at the same (laughs) desk. And Madeline was lucky enough to take the head of the desk and I sat at a little corner and got to stare at her doing her thing all day. So (laughs) That's right. 
So growing up, you had two older brothers, two older sisters, wonderful parents and grandparents that, as you said, they influenced you into the collector you are today. I was hoping you could share a little bit about these wonderful people and how they have brought you along and started you on this journey. Well, I guess it's best to start with the grandparents because they're probably the only reason that I collect anything. Both sets of grandparents, amazing people, lucky to still have one grandmother still around who is my collecting buddy. When we go to New York to visit her, we love to collect together. So her and I hit antique markets and everyone laughs at us because they think I'm also an 85-year-old lady from New York, but (laughs) maybe at heart. So both grandparents were influential in my collecting. One set of grandparents didn't collect as as much, but they had certain philosophies to always have good things. And if you're going to spend money on something, it should be something good and something that you love. And um, I don't know why I always grasped onto that, but just kind of stuck from a early age. My mom always encouraged me to just be individualistic, as was she. She wasn't much of a collector herself, but she loved good things, and you know that. And um, miss her very much. But although she wasn't a collector, she definitely played an important role in too. I would say I got my taste from her for yes. sure. I'm very happy that you acquired her good taste. Yeah, I think I got my taste from her for sure. She had the best taste in everything: clothes, food, jewelry homes, everything. So definitely got that from her. Two brothers, two older knuckleheads who didn't love collecting anything. I feel like until I started collecting stuff, (laughs) no, they'll probably hate me for that. But um, two older brothers who also both took their own paths to do what they loved. And I think that's also kind of part of having a collector's gene, whether you collect anything or not, is having your own sort of path that you want to take and you follow that and you stick to it and you get there. So two great older brothers, two amazing older sisters that I'm very lucky to have. I don't think they collect anything specifically, but they themselves have also followed kind of the same path that the brothers have of doing their own thing and doing what makes them happy. One sister and brother-in-law love wine a lot and cigars. And so they actually have a pretty nice collection of that stuff, which is always fun to go and look at. So I guess they, they do collect. Yes, absolutely. So not only are you a collector of all things, but you also have great admiration for collectors. Where did this begin? Maybe who, who started this? Mm. I think I've had a lot of people on here in terms of people that I look up to as collectors. For me personally, grandparents, of course, were great collectors. But in terms of the people that I've had on here, each guest has been extremely well thought out. Obviously not myself (laughs) included. Um, (laughs) But each guest that I've had on here has been extremely well thought out. And really, the list of people that have joined me so far have been people that I thought of from the beginning before I even had a first episode in this. So I look at all of them as great collectors. I think Matt Rannick and his wife Yolanda are two of the 
greatest collectors of all time. It's not necessarily about personal value of things, but their taste, I think, is impeccable in everything that they do. Everything has a purpose. Everything is like so go with the flow, I feel like, with them, but so intentional at the same time. I think someone like Nate Berkus, who is obviously an incredible interior designer and his husband, Jeremiah, I mean, you just look at all the projects that they've done and it just looks, which I'm sure it's not because they've put in a lot of hard work to get to where they are, but everything they do seems so seamless, you know, put this here and that there, and this should go here and this color there. And we've had the pleasure of Nate helping us a little bit with our home too, which has been really special. So I think a culmination of all these people, you put them all in a room, whether they know each other or not, or have similar interests and they would all get along, no doubt. Over the years, you've had several collections, Mighty Beans. (laughs) How dare you? (laughs) Pokemon cards, coffee table books, watches, antiques, the list goes on. Will you care to walk us through maybe the evolution of your collecting? Starting at Mighty Beans, of course. (laughs) It started a little bit before Mighty Beans, which if anybody knows what those are or doesn't know what they are, they are the dumbest little beans with a magnet in it that had plastic faces on them. And people would collect them and they are so silly. And my mom bought me countless, countless boxes of Mighty Beans just so I could collect them also. She fueled the habit, but please don't Google them. They are (laughs) extremely silly. I would say before that, it started with Hot Wheels cars. Yeah, That was before you knew me. And I loved Hot Wheels cars, but I only wanted to collect Hot Wheels cars that were cars that you could find on the road for whatever reason. I don't know why, but those are the only ones I wanted. I didn't want any of the weird concept stuff that you would never see. So for whatever reason, I had an intention and purpose. And then... It moved on to action figures and wrestling action figures. And <laughs> this is really making you love me more, isn't mm-hmm. it? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and then it turned into Mighty Beans. I still collected Hot Wheels throughout all that. Baseball cards with my brothers was a huge thing. I think they probably stole them all out of my book when I wasn't looking <laughs> and replaced them with garbage that I had no idea. I'm sure they have great collections of baseball cards right now. <laughs> but um We collected all these things and it actually always happened when my mom was visiting and in town, she would take us to the store and buy us these packs and packs and packs of cards and we'd go sit in the car and we'd all open them up and everyone would get excited about who got what. Kind of from there, I was always into something, but probably when I was at the end of high school is when I really got into watches. Obviously being a high schooler, I couldn't afford anything crazy, but I fell in love with Nixon watches, which was really popular at the time. And now I look at them and it was like, I look like Flava Flav with these like massive watches on my <laughs> wrist. <laughs> they probably could have fit around my neck, but um, that was the thing back then. And then throughout college and all that, the watches thing really kicked in. I wasn't really collecting too many, but I admired them. I learned about them. And then I met you and I figured... You were still slightly Flavor Flav when I met you. (laughs) I still had some some weird shit. Some big watches. Okay. (laughs) Don't tell anybody. I'm sure there's some photos. But then I met you and I figured we would probably be together 
and get married at some point. So I might as well blow all the money I can now on, on watches. And you're probably wondering where all that money is. And <laughs> it's in the safe. So the Hot Wheels, maybe that was due to your grandfather and his love of cars and the dealership and everything of that sort. And the baseball cards, I know you and your brothers went to baseball camp every summer. What started you in watches? Maybe it was a gift or a memory or a person. Would you be able to elaborate on that? Yeah, I always remember both of my grandfathers having great watches. And a lot of times I didn't know what they were, but I started to learn more as I got older and learned more about watches. And I just always admired how effortless and cool they both were and still are to me, even though they're not physically here. They're still two of the coolest people in the world to me. And I just remember how effortless it was for both of them to dress up nice or dress casual, put a cool watch on and just go about their day, whether it was a small gold dress watch or my other grandfather had two watches. He had a Tissot T12, which on a steel bracelet, which I have. And he also had a gold Rolex Daydate, uh, your classic standard mobster <laughs> drug dealer, <laughs> gold Rolex Daydate with a champagne dial that he never wore. No matter the occasion, once in a while he, he wore it. But every day that I saw him, he wore this steel Tissot watch. And I just thought that was so cool that you have something that's worth a few hundred dollars and then you have something that's worth significantly more and you choose that other thing. And as I got older, he told me the story that they were on vacation and he really wanted to buy this Tissot. And I think they were in Puerto Rico. That was like a thing for all the New York people to go to Puerto Rico or whatever. (laughs) No one in Arizona, I don't think has ever gone to Puerto Rico on vacation, but that was a New York thing, I guess. So they went to Puerto Rico and I think he was like sweating about buying the thing. It was a family vacation, probably felt a little irresponsible, probably like I do when I buy a watch, but he went for it and he fell in love with it and he wore it everywhere, beat the crap out of it, has all of his scratches on it upstairs. I don't want to put my own on it just yet, but I love that. And then my other grandfather dressed up no matter where he was going. If he was going to the grocery store, if he was going to work, he put on a button down in slacks at the very least every day and put on a cool watch. And uh, he had a whole bunch of amazing stuff too. Turning to the next notes. You got a whole list over there of questions, don't you? (laughs) For someone as meticulous, with slight OCD as yourself, how have you learned to appreciate the charm of vintage? I think for me, vintage is kind of everything. And it's not for everybody, but for me, it's kind of everything, whether I don't only collect vintage, I collect modern stuff too. Matt Rannick, I think, said it best. He said, I love vintage. He's like, but I also love a modern toilet (laughs) and a modern oven or kitchen or whatever. And I think everybody should learn to appreciate both and find a good mix for both because unfortunately, a lot of modern stuff doesn't have the charm that vintage stuff does. And so I think vintage is the most important because everything that we have today is some sort of evolution of a vintage thing. Mm -hmm. A sofa, a pillow, a countertop. I'm just looking around our house, a book, (laughs) a countertop, a painting. 
you know, a candlestick, a wine glass, everything is from something older, right? Because it had to have evolved from something. So I think people need to appreciate vintage more. I think some people look at it as like dumpster diving, bed bugs, sort of dirty things that other people used in a different lifetime. But I think for a lot of people, vintage should be celebrated and appreciated. And if it's not for you to buy something, then that's fine. But to understand it and to appreciate it and and just know the history, I think, is what would make someone a more well-rounded buyer of anything. Your father and grandfather taught you to take great care and pride in everything that you own and possess, which I do see on a daily basis. <laughs> You're very meticulous. But when it comes to vintage, does that give you a little bit of a fear to add your own maybe scratch or piece of history to a piece that is now so fragile? Of course. I think especially when it comes to something like a watch, I'm always nervous to add a scratch. Once it has a scratch, a lot of times I let it go or I get it fixed. But <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not too big on scratching things up. It's not really, <laughs> it's not really it's something not I, roll. yeah, it's not how I, I roll. If it happens, it happens. I try and be careful. Most people will probably be surprised, maybe not surprised now that you're airing all my dirty laundry, but I don't wear watches in the pool. I don't wear them doing other adventures, which I'm not too keen on anyway, as you know. Hiking. Hiking. Nope. <laughs> um, so yeah, there is always a worry of, I would say I have the worry of more so breaking something. That's me knocking on wood. That's my worry. It's less of scratching something. It's more so permanently breaking, losing, damaging something that it can't be reversed. And I know they're just things, and obviously you have them insured for a reason, but certain things are more value. Certain things have more sentimental value. I think it just depends, but I try and be a little careful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> sure, that's very valid. How do you curate your collection? How do you find the space and the time? The space is easy. I just move uh. things from your side of the, <laughs> the bed. This is true. And from your side of the safe, I just move them somewhere else. Our only pain point in our relationship. Yeah, <laughs> um, which is good. Mm -hmm. But I think there's always room for more and there's always room for less and there's always room to pass something off to somebody else if you're not enjoying it. It's not the easiest thing to do, but... I think the harder part is looking at your collection and saying, this isn't getting enough wear and tear, if you will, and this isn't getting enough enjoyment as it should be. And I'm not wearing it for a reason because I'm really in love with these other things. And this is where my taste has evolved. So it's always hard to get rid of something, but I think it's okay. And I think it's one of those things where the easier it is for people to understand that an evolving collection is a great collection because you can't afford everything makes you a better collector because you're constantly chasing after the things that you want and working hard towards getting them or buying them or saving up for them or buying things just to trade up. You know, you, you might buy something knowing that it's going to go up in value and it'll get you closer to the thing that you want. All these things are okay. People frown upon doing them in certain lights, but all these things are okay to 
let your collection evolve. Nice. That, that answer your question? I did, yes. <laughs> For someone that's always worked from the moment he was able to, pouring more wine. Pour more wine. <laughs> Have any of your jobs or careers shaped you as a collector or maybe your collection itself? You can start at Tasty Delight. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Screw you. Um, okay, well, if you want to start there, my first job was at an ice cream shop called Tasty Delight. East Coasters will know what that is. I used to tell people that it was an ice cream shop turned strip club at night because oh, no one knew what Tasty Delight was. And it has, I've never heard this story. It has the most like promiscuous name for an ice cream store. No, all jokes aside, first job to teach me about collecting. Or maybe working hard to be able to get something or yeah, instilling I think, those values. And- I think any job teaches you that. But one in particular was in college. We had a custom apparel business, which you were privy to. (laughs) And we did all the fraternities and sororities on campus. We did other schools in the state. We did out-of-state schools. We did stuff for bars and restaurants on campus and other schools. And it really turned into this like full-fledged operation for a college kid running this business, doing essentially door-to-door sales with all the fraternities and sororities. And that was the first time ever seeing like some cash for our college kid roll in and I blew it all on you and <laughs> eating like shit at college restaurants and gaining 40 pounds, but that's for another day. Um, <laughs> but that was the first time I was like, okay, like this isn't me working at a restaurant or tasty delight. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was working hard towards something. And that's when the watches started, huh? That's when it got a little <laughs> bit more serious, like a little bit more serious. Yeah. But my first legit, legit watch was from you oh. for our wedding. We postponed our wedding a year and you kept telling me that you got me a watch and you were going to wait till <laughs> our next wedding and you already had it. And I was like, I couldn't wait. I couldn't wait either. <laughs> <laughs> and on what would have been our one year wedding anniversary of the first wedding date, which happened to be in the same month that we do get married in it eventually. You gave me the watch, which was a Rolex Explorer 216570. You know the reference number. It's true. Polar dial, which is a white dial, full set, box papers. <laughs> you bought it from Crown and Caliber. Yes. Now owned by Hodinkee. Oh, wow. I don't know if you knew that. I did not. Yeah. Look at that. How cool is that? It's very cool. So. Full circle. That's that's when it got serious. That actually brings me to my next question. (laughs) Do I I love you or the watch more? (laughs) I know you often have stories that can sometimes be more meaningful to you than the actual piece in your collection itself. Do you care to share about something in your collection and maybe the story behind it could be funny sentimental you already shared our wedding date so it doesn't have to be about me (laughs) if I want it to be (laughs) um well obviously that one means the most that watch will absolutely never leave my collection and there are other watches in my collection for sentimental value that will never leave the collection the Cartier Santos Dumont that was a gift from 
my grandparents for a birthday. And then after my mom passed, you got her handwriting inscribed on the back of the strap and gave it to me. And I cried like a little baby when you gave it to me. And now I wear it and think of her all the time and think of my grandparents. And that watch will absolutely never leave the collection. Don't ask me which out of the two, the one between you and them, I'd keep. I'm keeping both. There's no right or wrong answer. That one's the right answer. (laughs) No, no, they're both staying. (laughs) And then, of course, my grandfather's Tissot and Rolex and all that stuff is all very sentimental. And all the other ones I've just... Maybe a piece that's not a watch. A weird item that you've collected along the way may be from... I don't even know. You pick up pieces everywhere, (laughs) everywhere we go. Constantly pick up the pieces. Yeah. What else? We have tons of coffee table books and antiques. Okay. Coffee table book. Um, If you're listening, you probably listened to my episode with Glenn Spiro, who's an absolute genius and wizard with gems and diamonds and jewelry. And he's just insane. And if you didn't listen to the episode, listen to it just so you can hear him talk and and look him up afterwards and look at all the things that he's built and done. It's it's incredible and remarkable. I collect a lot of books, coffee table books. This is true. Much to your (laughs) dismay. He had done a coffee table book with Asseline, who I'm a big fan of, as is everybody. You probably have, if you have coffee table books in your home, you probably have one from them whether you know it or not. I collect a lot of their vintage books that are out of print. I collect a lot of their new stuff. Probably have over 50 to 60 coffee table books from Asseline that you may or may not know about. <laughs> Sorry. Sure this is true. Um, he did a book with them. I always wanted to buy it. I just slept on it too long, as happens often with collecting anything. And when I had him on the podcast, I told him that story, how I just didn't buy it and I missed it. And a week after we spoke, I get a package from London, DHL shows up and it was a fully wrapped copy of that book. I just thought that that was the coolest thing. It's an expensive book. It's expensive to ship anything from London, even if you ship a feather. (laughs) Um, So for him to take the time and effort to do that was just the coolest thing. And that's something I will never get rid of no matter how big or small our home is. Um, that one will always stay. I'll let that one stay. It's yeah. very special. And then a book that just arrived the other day. You're looking surprised. It's right on the coffee table. <laughs> <laughs> I've yet to see this book. Okay. Well, I'll have to walk over. Um, <laughs> a gentleman by the name of Davide Parmigiani is one of the most well-known uh, vintage watch dealers in Europe, specifically Italy and Monaco. He is a partner in an auction house called Monaco Legend Group. He's also like best friends with our Montanari, aka John Goldberger, who I know you know because I show you absolutely everything. And he put out this Patek Philippe book and sent me a copy. And it's a limited production he made for friends and family, which is really cool. And what I did even though it's just a book and this sounds crazy, but what I did to deserve that, I don't know, but he shipped it all the way from Monaco to me. And the book is just insane. 
It has some of the most incredible Patek Philippe's in it. It's all about Patek Philippe and nothing not to love. Wow. So there's lots of little stories like that. Yeah, that's quite special. Well, one more. Okay, let's hear it. Your parents got me a great book. Yeah. When we went to Venice, we were admiring all the oh, churches and all that there. And um, an artist did a, a photo book of all the Venice churches. And it was a limited production, I believe. And your parents got me a copy. And that's, right. that's another one that's not leaving. I love that book. Shout out to your in-laws, huh? That's right. <laughs> all right. Well, what is a piece of advice that has shaped you as maybe a person or even a collector? As disheartening as it is, never expect anything from anybody. I think is whether that pertains to collecting or not, I think that that's just an important thing to always have in the back of your mind is that no one owes you anything and you don't owe them anything, but never to expect anything from somebody else. I think the most important thing is the worst anybody's ever going to say is no. So never be afraid to ask a question. Never be afraid to barter a little bit. If you're trying to buy something, I know you sometimes have to leave the room when I like to barter. (laughs) (laughs) Gets you a little flush. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, just, just overpay, just overpay for everything. (laughs) Just offer, offer to also take him out to dinner. Um, But I think that that's also an important thing is the worst anyone's ever going to say is no. If you're looking to buy something and you're bartering with somebody and you want to ask for five bucks and um, it was, I think also Matt Rannick or another guest I had said, I'm never, I'm never, maybe it was Jason Fried. He said, I'm never looking, I can't remember. I'm never looking to barter enough so somebody doesn't have bread to put on the table. Mm -hmm. He's like, it's just that little extra ounce of satisfaction of, okay, you'll give me another five bucks done. Like yeah. now so I'm happy. Everyone wins. Yeah. Everyone wins. You're happy. That guy's happy. So sometimes you get lucky and you get a, a big break on something. Sometimes you don't, but it's mm-hmm. worth asking. Very nice. All right, Cam. Well, I want to introduce you to something called the collector machine <laughs> rundown. <laughs> All right. The one that got away. Hmm. Besides like every watch that was at normal prices when I was probably in like high school and college that I obviously couldn't afford still at the time, I would say that there was a time when I probably could have got a lot of incredible Cartiers that were just being slept on that are now completely unobtainable like Cartier crash nobody ever wanted that watch they were like what is this shape what is this thing Mm -hmm. um Cartier cloches which have always been on the rise but I think that the missed opportunity was creating a relationship with somebody at Cartier a long time ago when things were fairly priced and now you know, the people that did that back then are now the ones that are getting all these unique pieces and there's still room and time for that to happen. But I would say that that was a, that was a big miss not having that foresight. Yeah. And a dealer, his name's Tim, his company's called Fog City Vintage. He had a Patek Philippe 5167R, which is a modern watch, but it's a rose gold Aquanaut with a chocolate dial, which I love. And I love that combo. And he had one for 
an incredible price several months ago. And I just kept watching a site, watching a site, watching a site, and eventually it sold and got got kicked on that one. <laughs> but you didn't. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> the on deck circle. What's next for you in the collecting world? Mm. I'm scared to ask this. There's a package on the way. I'm sure there is. I always get nervous when we have to sign for something. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a lot of things that I want, but I've been really focused on furniture. Oh. There's a piece of furniture that you and I both really want that I think has a story behind it that we'll eventually tell at some point. But I think it's something that we're probably going to end up going for and I think that that's kind of next on deck for me is just some special pieces to add to our home. Besides watches, there's always watches on deck, but I can't reveal all those secrets. <laughs> Love that. Good answer. Um, the unobtainable. Maybe it's in private collection. <laughs> oh, you're learning. museum <laughs> or too pricey. Yeah. I don't know the correct verbiage there, but. <laughs> you're learning. <laughs> um Again, there's a million Cartiers that are just extremely special that have skyrocketed and they're all in, in good hands of people that deserve to have them. But I would say one that really got away was one that I actually have now. It is a, and it, you'll understand why I'm saying this, a Patek Philippe 3796. R, which the R stands for rose gold. It's Tiffany signed. It's one of my favorite watches that I own. And it got away because I passed up on it from the dealer that originally had it. And he sold it to the collector that I bought it from. So I ended up paying more. So it got away in that sense, but I own it now. So it's, it's not one that totally is lost. What about the unobtainable? The unobtainable is something that's kind of ever-changing for me because my tastes are always changing. And so, of course, everyone would love to have a Patek Philippe 1518, which is just in the multi-million dollar range now. It's just obviously super unobtainable. I think right now what feels unobtainable are piece uniques from brands like Cartier and and um, all that sort of stuff. And that's stuff that I would love to own and do one day and go through that process of putting my mark on something and going through that process of designing something, probably everything rose gold with a chocolate dial, but mm -hmm. they'll probably get sick of me. So no one will ever <laughs> want to do it. <laughs> no, I love that. Um, the page one rewrite. If you could do it all again, what would I you collect and why? I think watches would still be I think I would collect. I think I would probably, my list would look a little different. The things I would have bought early on would have been a little different, but that's kind of the process of learning. I think I would also collect some old cars and I would have learned about them because they were, a lot of them were the same price as some of the watches that get bought here. And now they've skyrocketed to astronomical numbers. And that would have been a fun market to kind of tail behind. And, but that's a little bit, that's a little bit riskier, but cars are obviously a personal passion and I have a love for them for obvious reasons that you know, but 
I think the only other things that bring the instant gratification like that are things that you can actually own and look at all the time. So other vintage barware and, and glass, like grandma has, and she's got a great collection of that stuff and Bo's admired it. Now she's got me hooked on it. And <laughs> yes. that would have been fun to collect with her over the years, but I'm trying to catch up now. Mm-hmm. There's still time. Who's the goat? <laughs> Someone you look up to. <laughs> oh, wow. Do you listen? I'm the number one fan. Um, the goat for me is, to be honest, every person that I've had on this podcast, because they're all so individualistic, whether they click the same thing or different things, they all have their own means and ways of collecting. And I just think that that's the coolest thing. Watch-wise, Aramontanari is the goat for just about probably everybody that I've asked that question to. He's got what Italians call sprezzatura. And he just has the best taste in everything. His Cartier collection is incredible. There's stuff that he has that nobody even knows about, and he publicizes an incredible amount of his stuff. I mean, he's got books on it. And so he's hard not to look up to. I think that Obviously, people I haven't had on this podcast yet that I would love to have on Ronnie Feig from Kith is, I think, someone to look up to. I think just the brand that he's created with Kith and all the collections that he's constantly doing and and the bandwidth that somebody can have to constantly put out new clothing collections. I mean, you look at clothing brands that put out new collections and it's a few times a year, right? Seasonal. He's constantly putting out new limited edition stuff and and collaborations. And I just think it's super impressive. So he's obviously got great collections of sneakers and all the things that he puts out too. Another person I haven't had on yet, Lori Hirschleifer, who's one of the co-owners of Hirschleifers in New York. They're basically like a retailer for lots of high-end brands. You look at her Instagram and just her style and her taste and everything and her bag collection and her jewelry and watch collection and the way she just like puts all this stuff together. It's like you look at somebody and if they were to like lay out the outfits that she puts on and, and the stuff that she chooses to wear and stuff, you would think that you like, oh, it's going to be too much. And then she like does it effortlessly. It's really neat. Obviously, Nate Burkus, who's been just super generous to us and helpful to us. And he's hard not to look up to. I mean, look at the homes that he's created for himself and other people and his own collections of furniture and vintage frames and all that stuff. Um, But all in all, everybody that I've had on here is probably the goat for me. And there's a reason that I've wanted to chat for them selfishly. They're on here for me. (laughs) Like (laughs) this is, this is for me to look back at when I'm 85 and look at how cool it is for me to have talked to some of these people who are super influential. And the fact that they've said yes to, chat with me is just super special, especially someone like Paul Feig, who I've looked up to ever since I was a chubby kid watching heavyweights and (laughs) watching all (laughs) the movies and shows that he's done. And um, the fact that he even responded to an email to come on here is just super humbling. So. Awesome. Love it. All right. I think I know the answer to this one, but the hunt or the ownership. Definitely. uh, See, this is hard for me. Oh, because no, I thought it was easily going to be the hunt. It is. It, it the answer is definitely the hunt. Mm-hmm. But owning the thing sometimes is just as good. 
yeah. right? Like certain things are really easy to find. Certain watches are really easy to find. I'm not hunting the most rare watches in the world. Mm-hmm. Some of the stuff I have is rare. Some of it is not. Hunting for it and finding it is great. But for me, enjoying the thing is sometimes just as good. When we're at an antique store and we don't know we're looking for something, we find something, that to me is the best part of the hunt. When you stumble upon something and you're like, wow, I found it. When you are searching so long for something that you know you want and then you finally found it. Mm -hmm. There's that fear of, is it perfect? Is it the condition I want? Is the price right? Right. There's all these other factors. Like just because you found the thing doesn't mean that it's the right thing. So there's always been discouragement of like, oh, I think I found it. And then you look at it and you're like, oh shit, it's missing half the things that it should have. Oh yeah. So the hunt is always fun. The hunt is stressful. Mm-hmm. I think there's a solid mix between the two. I, I think it's very situational. I think all in all, the hunt is probably the best part, but ownership can be just as fun if you do it right. I love it. Good answer. All right. And most importantly, Cam, do you think you were born with the collector's gene? <laughs> Absolutely. I don't know why. I think I know how. Yeah, I think I know how too. But 100%, no doubt about it. Nice. Well, it was a pleasure having you on. <laughs> You're taking over. Let's, let's do it again. You're taking over. Watch you just blow this up and get a bunch of sponsorships that I'll I haven't got. You. You'll okay. hire me yeah, yeah, to clean the toilets. Mm-hmm. Okay. How about you? What do you want to add to your collection? You have some good stuff. I do. I have some good stuff. Um, a lot of mismatched socks. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe some more watches. Yeah. Watches from your collection. Oh, you want them from mine? Yeah. No, that doesn't happen. <laughs> I'll gladly buy you one, but it doesn't happen to yeah. just get passed over. One to share. That'd What's be a watch that you want? You know, I putting me on the spot like this. I don't know. I'm the one doing the interview. I'm not prepared. <laughs> You're cutting me answer. off? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Love you. Thanks for the interview. Anytime. All right, that does it for this episode. Thank you all for listening to Collector's Gene Radio.